We'll be looking at verses 8 through 12 today as we continue our study through this book. And again, I, I have, you hear me say this about every book I know, grown to love this book because it takes the truth of God's sovereignty, God's power, God's glory, the big thoughts of salvation, and it brings them into here and now and teaches us how to live. How to live in a world that doesn't recognize those things, but how to live faithfully. How to live with steadfast hope. In a world where sin abounds and secular religion, because that's what it is, we might say secular in terms of being a lack of religion, but no, it's just a new religion, another religion. And when it seems bent on ridiculing Christianity, and driving it out of the world in a world where faithful Christians may seem to feel more out of place among the general population, Peter writes to encourage every Christian of every age by reminding us that our citizenship is in heaven. That we have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ that we belong to God as his own precious children and that we will forever be with him where he is. Peter's purpose in writing all of this, he says in chapter 5, verse 12, is that whatever trials we may face today, we can and must remember this grace of God through the Lord Jesus Christ and we must stand firm in it. And as Peter has taught it, the foundation of living a steadfast and hopeful and godly life in this world is not about fixing our circumstances or achieving a certain milestone on this earth. It is about turning our eyes to Christ by faith and living according to his character in holiness and righteousness. That's what Peter has covered in chapter 1 and the first part of chapter 2. And then, beginning in chapter 2, verse 11, as we saw, he gives practical instruction in doing just that. Peter addresses the everyday spheres of our lives and how we live with steadfast hope and godly character as it relates to our civil authorities, as it relates in our workplace relationships, and as it relates to our home specifically between a husband and a wife. And with the principles that he lays down there, he pretty much covers all the bases of everyday life for each one of us. And then in our text for today, chapter 3, verses 8 through 12, he brings it to a conclusion, a, a summary of this section by highlighting the essential character traits and behaviors of a godly Christian life in this world. Now, before we get there, I know you just got settled in. I know you got turned to the passage. Hold your finger there and turn back to Psalm 34. Psalm 34, because the last half of our text is a quote from Psalm 34. The Apostle Peter with these verses closely on his mind, gives us practical instruction in godly living. 
And I want us to read the section from which Peter quotes, and then we'll read the text that is before us today, this morning. This will help us to see the context of what Peter is saying. And what's more, it'll remind us of a very important point, that the Bible of the Apostles was the Old Testament. And the Apostles viewed the Old Testament as the Word of God, inerrant, authoritative, and sufficient. And they teach it to us, even in the teachings of the New Testament. And so, the difference between the Old Testament and the New is not a difference between relevant and irrelevant. It is all the Word of God. So let's look at Psalm 34. I want to read from verses 11 through 18. Peter doesn't quote all those verses, but this is the section he quotes from. Psalm 34, 11. Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. That wasn't just flowery language spoken by a psalmist who's writing a good song. That is truth that Peter means to apply to the lives of godly people in the midst of a hostile world. And so let's look over now at 1 Peter chapter 3, starting in verse 8. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from, the, from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Whoever desires to love life and see good days. Do you desire to love life and see good days? Some of the most beloved words in our American Declaration of Independence have to do with that concept, right? The assertion that God has given all men certain inalienable rights, among them are what? Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. We may not know anything else about the Declaration of Independence, and we may know nothing of the intention of its authors, but this much we know. And we love those words, don't we? They speak to the American spirit. They speak to the American dream. But when they are applied merely to an earthly context, as Christians, we understand that there is a fundamental flaw in those words, isn't there? And when these words are embraced without understanding 
the moral context in which they were written, and without understanding what their intent was, they become empty words at best, dangerous words at worst. You see, when all we consider is the rights that we believe are due us, and not the responsibilities that are demanded of us, we miss the point. And those words lead us to become self-centered, self-serving people, as if our own life and liberty, and as if your life and liberty are purely for the purpose of my own pursuit of happiness, as we define it. And so the main characteristics of our society today are what? Pursuit of wealth. Pursuit of possessions, sexual pleasure, entertainment, self-identity, you name it. And it's becoming counterproductive, isn't it? I mean, brother, you've seen it, haven't you? <laughs> it's counterproductive, giving our lives to this sort of thing. And when we talk to people who are absolutely miserable, we have gotten to the point as a society where we are actually willing to sacrifice our lives and liberties for the sake of our own individual happiness. And have you noticed that we're still not happy? <laughs> Could it be that we've missed something? Could it be that we've misunderstood the, the intentions the Founding Fathers had behind that phrase? Or worse, could it be that we have missed the very purpose of life and liberty and the nature of happiness? Scripture teaches us that the answer to each of those questions is yes, we have missed it. Is there a better way? Yes. Is there a higher purpose in life? Is there a greater liberty? And is there a better happiness? Yes, there is. And that is what the Word of God is teaching us in the passage before us today, there is a good life. But it has nothing to do with our earthly circumstances, nor our national identity. The good life, as Scripture defines it, is eternal life. It is forgiveness of sins, reconciliation with God, following Jesus Christ carrying out his purpose and design, and setting our hopes on the promise of eternal inheritance kept in heaven for us until the day we see Jesus face and live with him forever. This is the good life. And this good life is not threatened by any earthly conflict or hostility. It belongs to every Christian in every age, in every part of the world, and every circumstance of life. This good life is invincible. It is unfading. It cannot be taken away because its source is God himself who gives it by his grace, who preserves it by his grace, and who completes it by his grace. And so Peter calls all who would live this good life to turn our eyes upon Jesus and to follow him by faith alone. And then, for all of those who are in Christ Jesus, 
Peter teaches that we can live this good life not just by and by, but here and now. In this world, regardless of our circumstances and what the world thinks of us. And Peter has been teaching us how to do just that. And now he brings this section of his teaching to a close by summarizing the character, the behavior, and the blessing of the good life that we have in Jesus Christ. In verse 8 then, Peter says, Finally, all of you, so he's not merely speaking to masters and servants as he did in chapter 2, nor is he merely speaking to husbands and wives as he did in the first part of chapter 3 anymore. Now he is speaking to everyone, all of you, all Christians. And he is taking these lessons and he is applying them to the life of the church. And he says, finally, that's in conclusion or in summary. He's taking everything he's said to this point, he's boiling it down to the most basic principles, and he is calling us to embrace them and to live by them. What does this good life look like, really? How do we live it? That's what Peter's getting at here. And the text begins by outlining for us the character of the good life. The character of the good life. We see that in verse 8. He says, finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. These are the character traits. These are the heart attitudes. These are the guiding virtues of what, what kind of people we are supposed to be as we live according to God's design and purpose in this world. The first character trait we see here is what we would call Harmony. You say, that's not what he said. He said unity of mind. Well, that's the idea there. In fact, if you happen to have a New American Standard translation among you, it says, be harmonious. Be harmonious. If you think about music and consider the difference between harmony and melody, then I think you get something of the idea here. A song is not made up just of melody. You can make a song of just melody, but a, a really nice song is a song that includes beautiful harmonies, right? That's the idea. There is a diversity of parts that create a beautiful piece of music, but in order for it to be a beautiful, true piece of music, the musicians might all be playing different instruments and different parts, but they have to be playing the same song, right? That's the idea here. There is something of a diversity that exists within the church because we are all different people and we all come from different places and different backgrounds and we have different personalities and different ways of thinking and different inclinations and different gifts. So when Peter calls us to have unity of mind, he is not calling us to uniformity. He's not saying do everything exactly the way I do it or think exactly the way I think. He's saying be united in your minds on what is most important and what truly brings you together. He's not calling us to be uniform. In fact, the New Testament writers praise the diversity of gifts within the church and they call us to cultivate those gifts. But as a church, 
as Christ's representatives in the world, we are called to be harmonious with one another. That means we must be united. United in what? United in the core of what marks our church, our identity as a church, our mission as a church. We are to be united in our commitment to the truth of God. We are to be united in our devotion to the word of God. And we are to be united in our efforts to make disciples of all people for God's glory. Now, the reality is that that kind of commitment, that kind of devotion, this immovable commitment to the truth of God's word will inevitably divide us from some, from those who do not accept the truth. But it must be the basis of our unity and fellowship together. That's why, brothers and sisters, we take doctrine seriously. That's why it is the word of God that we open up and preach. Because that is to be the basis of our spiritual growth. That is to be the basis of our mission in this world. That is to be the basis of how we worship together. And it is to be the basis of our unity with one another. This is the unity that our Lord prayed for in his high priestly prayer in John 17, when he says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's, that's, I'm not praying just for the disciples I'm walking with today, but for the people who follow me of every generation, Jesus prays, that they may, they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me, and loved them, even as you loved me. In a similar fashion, the Apostle Paul instructs us, in Philippians 1.27, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. That striving is not fighting against one another, but laboring together in unity with one another in the work of the gospel. This is our calling as a church to display the character of our Lord Jesus Christ to the world around us by working together amidst all our diversity and our thoughts, our various opinions and, and preferences and, and idiosyncrasies for the work of the gospel. This is the basis of our unity because it is the basis of our identity. Beloved, whatever else we might consider ourselves to be, first and foremost and at the core, we are sinners saved by grace. We belong to Christ and we are his people. And we might come from any number of different backgrounds and we might have any number of different viewpoints on, on, on things that we're allowed to argue about. But at the core, we are to be united in one another because what is most important to us is this. Can you say that about yourself this morning? 
Can you say that Christ is your identity? Is the gospel your theme? Is the word of God the dearest object of your attention? Or are we united around something else? This is not a light matter. Peter says, be harmonious with one another under the word of God. The next essential character trait that we see here is sympathy. The word in the original language literally means sharing the same feeling. Sharing the same feeling. Now, understand that's not a sentimental thing and that's not aww. That might be a sympathetic response, but that's not what... It's not the whole idea of sympathy here. The idea here is that our commitment to the truth, our passion for the truth, that is the basis of our harmony, is not something that makes us impersonal and uncaring and disconnected from the real-life context of the people around us. Okay? The fact that we are devoted to the truth above all does not mean that we lock ourselves away and have no care for the real lives of the people right in front of us. We are not called to be insensitive or indifferent toward one another's feelings, toward their pains or their trials. Instead, we are called to sympathize with one another, to share in their feelings and their sorrows and their joys. As the Apostle Paul commands in Romans 12, he says, Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. And in Galatians 6, 2, Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. And we're told later in the New Testament that the spirit of this is not just when you see a brother who has a need and you pat him on the back and say, peace, be warmed and filled, and send him on their way. Is, the point is, no, sit down with them and minister to them right where their need is if you have the ability to meet it. Right? I heard a testimony of this. Just Friday night at the rehearsal dinner of the happy couple. And one got up and said, I'm a pastor's wife. And anybody who's been a pastor's wife knows what that means on Sunday morning. I'm a single mom. <laughs> and she talked about a day, you know, her husband had gone off. He was getting ready for the things of the service. And she was just having a really rough morning with the kids. And she called her friend. And she said, I'm having a bad day. And the friend said what? Peace, be warmed and filled. I'm praying for you. You know what she said? She said, do you need coffee? Do you need a hug? Or do you need something else? And she said, all of the above. And she said, minutes later, she showed up at my front door with coffee and a hug, and she helped me get those kids to church. See, that's sympathy. That's a sympathetic mindset. That is being aware of the needs of those around us and doing everything that we can, if possible, to get into their lives and to minister to those needs in a real way. It's not because we're trying to make everybody's life easy, but it's because we're devoted to the truth of God and we're devoted to one another as brothers and sisters in Christ and we are here to meet one another. It's one of the things I love to hear when people come and get to know our church for the first time and they say, you're like family. And what have I told you before many times in members' meetings, Cornerstone members, don't ever let a first-time guest leave without a friend. 
Why? Because our devotion to the truth, whether we're introverts or extroverts, makes us people-oriented people. And we can't meet every need, but we ought to be sensitive, we ought to be sympathetic to one another in a loving, genuine way. That means we must spend time with one another, not just in Sunday gatherings. That means we need to enter into one another's lives with genuine interest and genuine desire to walk through our Christian lives together and to grow in grace together, to actually want to be a tool of God's grace in someone else's life. It means much more than a simple Sunday morning pat on the back and a passing greeting. It means taking a genuine and active interest in one another, going out of our way to minister to each other in meaningful ways, and making it a priority to disciple one another, to be active agents of spiritual growth in each other's lives. And we cannot do that if we are primarily focused on ourselves. We cannot do that if the decisions of our lives are primarily oriented around us and us alone. We can't do it. As one preacher so helpfully states it, preoccupation with me cannot coexist with sympathy for you. Brothers and sisters, if we would be like Christ, we must get out of our selfish bubbles and we must enter into the lives of one another as ministers of God's grace. Be sympathetic with one another. The next essential trait of Christian character that we see is love. Peter specifically says brotherly love. The idea here is warm family affection and kinship and the devotion and service that results. And I actually take comfort in love being qualified as brotherly love, right? Because brotherly love isn't perfect. You have siblings, right? You know nobody's smiling because maybe you were the ones picked on. But sibling love is not always perfect love, is it? But it's deep and rich, Right? Parents, you've seen this even in your own kids. They might fight and fight and fight and fight amongst each other, and you have to help them deal with that, but just let some other kids step in. And what happens? They turn, right? They, they will protect them. The idea here is warm family affection. We might have our moments of struggle and disagreement, and yes, we will, and yes, we have to work through those and deal with the sins that are behind those too, but fundamentally we are unified with one another. We will defend our families. We are devoted to our families. Much more so with the church of Jesus Christ. Our mindset ought to be, these are my people. And I will stick with them through thick and thin. I've told you before about this recent trend I've seen of Christian leaders throwing Christians under the bus to placate the sensitivities of the world. And I think it's of the devil. Christians turning their backs on their own beloved brothers and sisters in Christ because they want to sound woke. Come on. We are Christ's family. Do we have problems? Sure we do. We're sinners just like everybody else. But we stand together. Why? Because we love one another as 
brothers and sisters ought to. What does this mean? This means that we give ourselves to our heavenly family in unselfish service. It means that we strive to protect one another and to care for one another as we would care for ourselves. And Peter even explains later in verse 10 that this brotherly love, what does it look like? It means we don't use our tongues to deceive and harm one another. Gossip and slander and bickering and backbiting have no place in the life of the church. And Peter continues in verse 11 that this brotherly love looks like striving to do good and to maintain godly peace in the church, encouraging one another to walk in the good and peaceful paths, that we are willing to confront sin. We're willing to be confronted when we sin. It means that we're willing to take the initiative in addressing anything that might cause a division or a broken relationship among us. Why? Because before God, we're all we've got. We're stuck with one another. We're not trying to build an exclusive country club here in the church. We're we're seeking to to be a part of God's building His church, which means bringing in people from every tribe, tongue, people, nation, and language, which means bringing in a diversity of opinion and bringing in a bunch of sinners, warts and all, sanctifying them and setting them on the track toward heaven. That's what Paul deals with in in his epistles. Just look at it. I mean, how can Paul love a church like Corinth? Riddled with sin. And Paul says, I rejoice in you because of the work of grace that God has done. Paul doesn't write to berate them. Paul doesn't throw those believers under the bus. He stands with them for their sanctification. 1 John 3, 16. By this we know love, that He, that is Christ, laid down His life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Beloved, let us make an effort, an active and intentional effort to love one another. Go out of your way to express it and demonstrate it. You got a problem with somebody else? Go out of your way. To address it and talk about it. It's okay. Someone else offend you? Go out of your way and address it. It's okay. Why? Because we love one another and we are seeking one another's good. You can't just coexist in the church. We live together. Next, Another essential trait of Christian character that we see here is compassion. Where does this love come from? It comes from a heart of compassion. Or as Peter calls it, a tender heart. There's there's one other place in the New Testament where this term is used, and it pretty well summarizes what it means to be compassionate and tenderhearted, and it's Ephesians 4.32. It says this, Be kind to one another. (laughs) Be kind. To one another, tender hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. The idea here is gentleness, mercy, deep concern. 
the Greek word that is used is kind of a funny sounding word, but the idea is that the word refers to bowels. <laughs> and that might not sound significant to you, but in that culture, the bowels were considered the seat of emotions, much like we say the heart. Some of you might even have a translation that says bowels of mercies, right? It's a heart of compassion. It's not just an act, but it's something that comes from the very core of who we are in our existence. This is something that was demonstrated by the Good Samaritan, right? When he sacrificially ministered to the man on the side of the road. This was also demonstrated by the prodigal father. Who so lavishly and without reservation welcomed his wayward son home with compassion and forgiveness. How many crises, how many conflicts would be averted and diffused and how many relationships would be repaired if we were simply compassionate people? Right? And as with sympathy, what stands in the way of our compassion is nothing more than our selfishness and pride. Brothers and sisters, we must get our eyes off ourselves. We must look up and we must look around and we must have compassion on one another. Why do we love one another? Why are we compassionate? Because the God that we serve who has shown love and compassion to us has also shown love and compassion to them. How can we dishonor the ones that God has loved? And if God can love them, can't we? <laughs> if God can love me, and can't you? For Christ's sake, let us be compassionate people. And then the next essential character trait for God's people that is given here is humility. Or a humble mind. I had a professor in college who summarized this humility of mind by saying it means having a low opinion of your own opinion. And I think that's helpful. It's the idea. It's the idea of having a lowly spirit. That, that doesn't mean self-deprecating. That doesn't mean self-loathing or self-abuse, since at the heart of that really is another form of pride. But the idea here is also not self-exalting or self-asserting. Is having the right opinion of ourselves as God sees it. The Apostle Paul applies this character trait very well in Philippians 2 when he writes, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. When we see who God is, and when we see who we are in light of that, which is what Peter has taught all throughout this book so far, then we have no room for pride. But when we see God as He is, when we see ourselves in light of who God is, then we will be able to treat others as they should be treated and as we should treat them. And so let us strive in the grace of God to be humble-minded. These are the character traits of a good life as God has defined it, as God has ordained it. And I like the way one commentator sums it up. He says, the joys of their lives in, 
in the in the in Christian life are maximized when believers are united in truth and life with one another, peaceful in disposition, gracious toward those who need the gospel, sensitive to the pains of fallen sinners, sacrificial in loving service to all, compassionate instead of harsh, and above all, humble like their Savior. That's what Peter's getting at here. And that brings us now to consider, secondly, the behavior of the good life. The behavior of the good life. What do these character traits look like when they're lived out in everyday life? That's what Peter explains briefly in verses 9 through 11, and he fits it into three basic categories of behavior that should mark all Christians. That's what I want us to see. First, in verse 9, he writes of blessing. Look at what he says. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. That sounds a lot like what we saw back in chapter 2, verse 23, right? Speaking of the response of Jesus himself to his suffering, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. That's a quote from Isaiah 53. And it reminds us that in all these things, our example is Christ himself. That in the worst possible suffering, the worst possible injustice, Christ modeled how we ought to live all of these characteristics. And the language of Peter here, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, is is really emphatic. If you're in the habit of returning evil for evil, or if you're in the habit for returning insult for insult, stop. And don't allow yourself to walk down that road. Do not do this. Rather than seeking vengeance, rather than answering an insult with an insult, the text says here we ought to respond even to those who mistreat us with blessing. Now, in most controversial and difficult confrontational situations in our society today, the way most people are going to see that is they're going to stand toe-to-toe with the person who's yelling at them, and they're going to respond by saying, Blessings! 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 That's not what Peter is getting at here. We're not seeking to shut down somebody else's argument by out-shouting them. The idea here is specific. The word blessing in the Greek is a word from which we get our word eulogy. Why is it that we always save the eulogies for after somebody has passed on? The word eulogy simply means speaking well of. That's what it means. So, to quote the the wisdom of the great historical cartoon philosopher Thumper, what this means is, if you can't say something nice, what? Don't say nothing at all. It means we're not looking for a reason to cut down even the people who mistreat us. But rather, we're looking for a reason to edify and to be constructive and to speak well of other people. And is this not the example of Paul and Silas as they sat in a Philippian jail for an unjust reason? What were they doing? They weren't complaining about the officials that put them there. They weren't speaking rudely to the jailer. They were singing praises to God. Guess what? The jailer heard that. And then when the earthquake happened and the doors were open and and all the all the... The, the prisoners were still there. 
What does the Apostle Paul say? What do they say? Don't do harm to yourself. We're all still here. While they're sitting in a prison, they're concerned about the good of the jailer. And what was the result of that? The jailer and his family are converted to Christ. That's the idea. We also see this attitude displayed in Stephen in Acts chapter 7, when in the midst of being brutally executed for his faith, what is he praying for? He's praying for the forgiveness of the people who were throwing the stones at him. How do we give a blessing like that in the midst of such hostility? Friends, this is something only Christ can do in us. This is something that only the Holy Spirit can produce in us. That's why we don't see much of it in the world today. So, as Christians, practically speaking, how can we give a blessing in the midst of hostility? Well, another commentator helps us out. He says, first of all, believers can bless people by loving them unconditionally. Contemplate that. Love unconditionally. Second, they can give a blessing by praying for the salvation of an unbeliever or for the sanctification of a believer. It's hard to hate somebody you regularly pray for, isn't it? Third, believers can bless people by expressing gratitude for them. Do you express gratitude for people and to people? It would be a great exercise. Finally, and most crucially, believers are to forgive those who persecute them. Forgive those who persecute. We are to be people of blessing so that even if we suffer and even if we have to take a stand, we would we do so in a way that is meant for blessing, that is meant for good, that is meant to show the fruit of the Spirit at work in our lives because we are striving to imitate Christ who when he was reviled did not revile again. Next, not just blessing, but in verse 10, Peter mentions truth. That is, that we are to be people of the truth, who love the truth and speak the truth. He says, for whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. This is where Peter begins to quote from Psalm 34, which we read earlier. And as I've already mentioned, this means we are not to be using our tongues, our mouths, our words to do harm or to deceive, but rather we are to be using our tongues to do good and to build up. That's what the Apostle Paul instructs us in Ephesians 4.29, right before he tells us to be kind to one another. He says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. Friends, listen, injury and insult will happen. There is no doubt about it. The question is, how will you respond? Will you respond with blessing? Will you respond according to the truth? Will you respond with grace? Or will you return the insult? This is one of the key differences between those who are living the good life and those who are not. We are people of blessing. We are people of truth. 
and we seek to show the grace of Christ in all that we do and say. And thirdly, regarding the behavior of the good life, Peter also mentions peace. The second part of verse 11, he says, we are to be, the, to be people of peace who make peace and pursue peace. Let him seek peace and pursue it. That language there has the idea of hunting for something aggressively. It's almost ironic. It's almost paradoxical, isn't it? Earnestly contending and fighting viciously for peace. Peace here has the idea of tranquility, absence of conflict, but it's not just a passive thing. It's something that takes an earnest effort of harmony with one another, an earnest effort to be sympathetic and to love one another, to have compassion and humility, to be people of blessing and truth. Do you see what I just did there? In pursuing the character traits and the behavior that Peter has taught us here, we are actually actively building godly peace among God's people, and that will have a natural overflowing effect to the world around us too. Because in Christ, we have peace with God. We ought to live according to the peace of God and strive to be ministers of that peace to one another. As Jesus himself taught in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. There isn't much peace in our world today, is there? There isn't, certainly isn't much of this. You say, well, there is peace. Often it's coerced. It's either coerced peace or it's both sides have stopped while they reload. That's how peace works in our world today. There isn't much godly peace, but there ought to be much, much godly peace among God's people in the church. We ought to fight viciously for it. And when sin creeps up, that threatens that peace, that threatens that unity, we ought to attack it. When something comes in to harm, we ought to deal with it. We don't let it fester, or it will destroy us. Beloved, let us be people of blessing and truth and peace. And may we be clearly known for it as we walk in unity and sympathy, love, compassion, and humility together. And Peter finishes off this section by encouraging us with the blessing of the good life. Look at verse 12. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. This makes me think back to uh, the end of Psalm 1, right? Which says that the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. There is a warning here that the sovereign and almighty God has set his face against those who do not know him or who walk in his ways. This is a statement of judgment of God's righteous judgment against all sinners. It is a warning not to go that way, but to look to the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation from God's judgment, for reconciliation to God, for forgiveness from sin, and for eternal life. Beloved, if you've never come to faith in Christ, you need to do this today. And I urge you, do not walk down the way of rebellion against God. If you do, His face is against you. 
but there is a good life that you can have. There is a godly life. There is a life of peace and reconciliation that you can have through the Lord Jesus Christ. And I urge you to cry out to him today for salvation. And for those of us who are in Christ, these words are words of encouragement that the eyes of the Lord are on you. And that his ears are open to your prayer. He is watching over us. He hears our cries. He is graciously active in our lives, leading us to the eternal inheritance preserved in heaven for us. All who are in Christ are safe in his hands because he is responsible and trustworthy and sovereign. So my friends, let us embrace this vision of the true good life as God has shown it to us. The world is going to offer you another form of the good life. Do not be deceived. It is vanity fair. And in the midst of vanity fair, living the good life like Christian and faithful means wearing the armor and keeping your eyes fixed on Christ and walking straight ahead. As one preacher summarized it with this encouragement, let us live the life we will love and never regret. And that life belongs to us in Christ Jesus. So as I close, I want to leave you with the words of Romans chapter 12, where the Apostle Paul gives us an explanation of these things, a list of the things that ought to mark us as Christians. It is complementary to what Peter has said here. Romans 12, he says, Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, Give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Let's pray.